Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and gift mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customize paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. If Russia escalates to using weapons that are banned under all forms, not just, you see, morally and ethically regarded as prohibitive, but by arms control agreements and by the norms of what all governments have accepted, autocracies and democracies alike, that you can't win a nuclear war, then I don't see how Russia returns to some sense of normalcy when this war ends if they decide to use nuclear weapons in the course of the war. And that's another consideration Putin has to take under advisement. He can't win if he uses these weapons, and there's no battlefield reversal he can change by using them. Rolf Mort Larson is a former career CIA operations officer. He was on our show just a few weeks ago to talk about Russia and Ukraine, and he is back by popular demand to provide us with an update. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Rolf, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. You, uh, you now have the distinction of being the guest on the show who has been the quickest to do a repeat performance. And we really appreciate you taking the time again. Well, Michael, it's an honor, and I hope I don't leave or you or your guests disappointed. Thanks for having me back. No, you, um, you, you the first time around um, 
were one of our uh, most popular guests. So I think you really enlightened people to what was happening in Ukraine and look forward to kind of an update discussion today. And, you know, let's let's dig right in. And I'd, I'd start by asking you to give us the arc of the story of the war in Ukraine to date, right? Kind of bring right. us up from the invasion to, to where we are now and and maybe end by telling us exactly where we are on the ground today. Well, I think we started with another strategic surprise for the entire world. Well, even though Putin's buildup went for weeks to invade Ukraine, I think there was an underestimation of his intentions, his plans, and therefore a, a big miscalculation on everyone's side exactly what would transpire once he finally in, crossed that border from Belarus and began to invade. And so the false assumptions that we now know to be true, and I don't think these will be disproven over time, is that that the first and foremost, that Ukraine's will, their indomitable will, is is not going to be denied. And I think some people doubted that. Second, I believe that we underestimated, as I said, you know, Putin's the scope of his intentions. Third is a massive overestimation on the uh, Russian military. It's uh, both its will to fight and its ability to fight. Yeah. And and f- finally, which has turned out to be an extremely important part of the story, is is NATO's unity, which Putin severely underestimated. So based on that, I, I think uh, we've hit a stalemate. And, and that's where we are now for in the coming days. And we're watching both sides jockeying to see who can break that stalemate. And I'll add one other element that may deeply affect the calculations as to how to break a stalemate and, and what both sides might try to do, and that's the changing nature of war. Michael, I know you and I sat around at the 5 o'clock meetings after, the, uh, after 9-11 uh, watching the U.S. military and, and our intelligence people fight a new kind of war in Afghanistan. I think we're finding 20 years later uh, that we're fighting a new kind of we, meaning the world, but Ukraine first and foremost is fighting a new kind of war in on its territory, where technology has become an asymmetric means to defeat a much larger, well well armed military force. I, as a tanker in Germany in the 1970s, believe me, I'm watching the tanks. I cringe every time I see the tank numbers getting hit with missiles and watch the drones take out tanks and artillery and kill Russian generals. And I say to myself, with these kinds of asymmetric means at their disposal, it's given Ukraine this tremendous, almost euphoric uh, boost in morale. So we're at a stalemate that favors Ukraine. Yeah, and, and, and we're going to all have to adjust, right, to the new realities. Um, every army in the world is going to have to think about what this means for them. Right. I, I, I think it, w- it would be a big mistake, as I did, I'll just throw myself <laughs> into this discussion, thinking that wars would be fought the way we fought the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and particularly in Europe. We're finding in a sophisticated environment like Europe, I'm not saying the Middle East is not sophisticated, but militarily, it's a much bigger challenge to fight there than it is to fight in the Middle East. And we're seeing things come into play, like sharing of intelligence, like the power of uh, social media, of how people share information, how, that, how, how they're do, using cell phones in the, on the battlefield for all kinds of purposes. In Europe, it's a much different proposition than anywhere else. And I think it favors the defender overall. Yeah, yeah. Rolf, this, this stalemate is, is taking place in eastern Ukraine. That's where Putin has 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 shifted his focus for the moment. Just a question for you. Just because his tactical objectives have shifted to eastern Ukraine, you don't believe his strategic objectives have changed. Is that correct? No. 
Uh, he's planned this his entire rule. That's become very clear now. It's been his intention from the very start to make a strategic move in Ukraine. Uh, after 20 years, he's been practicing this in Chechnya, in the Second Chechen War, in Syria. He was convinced his military would come into Ukraine and perform in that kind of manner as they did in, on those two fronts. And so he's just now trying to reckon with the fact they're incapable of doing that. Uh, but his other objective, and I think this is often lost in commentary, it was never all about Ukraine, and it wasn't about Ukraine joining NATO. This is Putin's bid to challenge the West and NATO's, what he considers to be their lock on global order. That's why he aligned himself with China, a similar autocracy in his eyes, uh, so closely, and that's what he's trying to break. He's trying to break what he considers to be the West and the Western liberal governance model's grip on global order. Yeah, and that objective remains solid for him. That's what he's still all about. Yes, and I would just say we're in commencement, uh, going into invocations and commencements around the country, and the most, at least the, I call the craziest in the sense of interesting commencement I've ever read or heard of was Alexander Solzhenitsyn in 1978 at Harvard. I recommend to your listeners to go get Google that and find that and read mm. it. It's, it's kind of a tough read. I, I feel sorry for the students who had to hear it, but it's an incredibly intense description of the kind of the Russian soul and, and, and it's how it's longing in this world. And I, certainly I'm not comparing Putin to Solzhenitsyn by any stretch, but there's an element of Putin's alienation from the West in Solzhenitsyn's own alienation, first from the Soviet Union and then from the West when he came to live in the United States. Okay. Um, Rolf, looking forward four to six months, what are the scenarios that you see? What are the scenarios that are the most likely going forward here? Well, unfortunately, escalation and uncertainty. Uh, we've just heard the uh, head of national intelligence, Avril Haines, and CIA director Bill Burns, among others, stress that we're heading into a period of uncertainty where both sides are going to try to find that what's eluded them so far. Ukrainians are going to try to find something that they can turn to the offensive. They're tired of being on the defensive, of course. They want to take back territory. They've got nothing to negotiate in a settlement other than their territory, and they're unwilling to give that up. For Putin, on the other hand, he's got to do something more than take some more land, which he did in 2014 in, in, in eastern Ukraine. He's got to find a, a way, a military means, to achieve something he can call a victory. And everybody in the world probably right now who's following this at all knows that Putin so far is being defeated on the battlefield. So he's got to find a way to break that. So when both sides are looking for something dramatic, we're likely to see that and probably be a bit unprepared for what's going to happen in the next four to six months. Is time on anybody's side here in particular? Yes, I, I do believe it is. I, I believe Putin believes it's on his side. And the reason he, uh, he, he thinks that way is because he's always depended on a war of attrition, which is what we're in now. He did that in Syria, he did it in Chechnya. And then, of course, that turns into the genocide and war crimes that we're, we're, we're seeing now emerge and have seen almost from the beginning in Ukraine. Whereas for the Ukrainians, they're fighting for their existence and they're, they're now victims of a genocide and war crimes. So uh, I'd say it's on their side. If you look at the history yeah. of invading armies since World War II, no one's emerged Victoria that's invaded another country and stayed there. So I think Ukraine will win in the end. So within this kind of near-term future, Rolf, that you outlined, how concerned are you about really two different types of escalation, right? One would be 
an expansion of the war from just Russia and Ukraine to NATO versus Russia. And the second would be Russia's use of weapons of mass destruction, in particular, Russia's use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Michael, this is my biggest concern, I th- and I think they, they are, they're in two integrated forms of escalation. One will probably cause the other, meaning, uh, and I'll, I'll put it in a movie scene, something uh, we may have seen much more dramatically in, in John F. Kennedy's presidency with the Cuban Missile Crisis. I hope that President Biden, along with Austin, Burns, Blink, and other key advisors, have already sat around the Oval or the Sid Room. And, and had a deep discussion of what they're going to do if uh, if Russia does fire that tactical nuclear uh, arm missile in Ukraine on the Ukrainian army. Because we have to know the answer now. We, they, uh, they obviously shouldn't be trying to figure that out in the aftermath of an attack. And I think the key questions they have to ask themselves in that meeting, and also as important, discuss with our NATO allies who have to be part of any decision for what would be a threshold. I wouldn't use the word red lines. I think we've all learned that that's probably unwise to set red lines. But what would be the threshold where NATO will at least have to consider joining the war formally? Uh, I think you can make a strong case that use of nuclear missiles, weapons in Ukraine is an existential threat to NATO. I think Putin has to believe that we might respond that way. I'm not saying we should. I'll leave that to, to brighter minds and, and, and people who have to work it right now from the president on down and our NATO allies too. But they have to be willing to. And Putin needs to know that the U.S. and NATO is willing to get involved if Putin does certain things. So maybe that will be a form of deterrence that's largely been lost since this war began. In other words, the idea that Putin must be deterred from thinking he can use nuclear weapons in order to have this great, say, escalatory effect he's seeking and get away with it. Is that something that, is that a message that he needs to hear publicly or is that a message that can be sent privately? How do you think about that? I don't think it's wise to send it publicly. I have to admit, I haven't thought this fully through, so I don't want your listeners to to, uh, too deeply uh, uh, bank on what I'm saying. But I'm very confident saying that I hope that message is being sent clearly in high-level channels between the U.S. and Russia and with other NATO partners. I would use potentially the Gerasimov Milley channel, though that's the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, of course, uh, General Milley, and his counterpart Gerasimov in Russia, or potentially the Austin Shoigu channel. It's very important those channels of communication remain open no matter how bad this war gets, specifically for this question. And I think Russia needs to understand, beyond Putin, the other key leaders in the intelligence services and the military need to understand that if they use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, they are existentially threatening themselves. There's no need to do it, but they threaten themselves if they use nuclear weapons because at that point, all restraint on NATO's part has to be reassessed. So our our good friend from the Belfer Center, Graham Allison, wrote a piece, I don't know, a week or so ago, two weeks ago, where he outlined a scenario where Putin destroys one Ukrainian city with a nuclear weapon and and then says to the Ukrainians, um, surrender, or you pick your Nagasaki, right? And that's not a scenario that that 
I've heard other people talk about in terms of the use of nuclear weapons. You hear people talk about using it as a last resort when the Russian army is is in dire straits. But this is a different kind of the use of nuclear weapons here. How do you think about Graham's scenario? Well, as you know, Michael, I have the deepest respect for Graham, and I think it's worth posing those kinds of questions to get everyone thinking of the kind of world we're living in suddenly that Russia has imposed on everybody, not just the Ukrainians, how we are all involved. I hope it doesn't come to that, and I I don't want to specifically address that except, say, uh, when I say Russia is existentially threatening itself, I don't just mean militarily. If Russia escalates to using weapons that are banned under all forms, not just, you see, morally and ethically regarded as prohibitive, but by arms control agreements and by the norms of what all governments have accepted, autocracies and democracies alike, that we're not that you can't win a nuclear war, then I don't see how Russia returns to some sense of normalcy when this war ends if they decide to use nuclear weapons in the course of the war. And that's another consideration Putin has to take under advisement. He can't win if he uses these weapons, and there's no battlefield reversal he can change by using them. Rolf, in terms of managing in terms of managing the risk of escalation, how do you think the Biden administration has done here? Have, do you think they've been too cautious? Do you think they've been just about right? How do you think about that? Has it evolved over time? I think it has. I I, uh, like to see us try to do today what we're considering doing tomorrow to help the Ukrainians. Everything short of uh, forcing NATO intervention or triggering some form of Russia attack on NATO. I don't think that's in anyone's interest. So I think the Biden administration has done a very good job of balancing uh, being very proactive with being careful. And I don't think that's a sin to be careful in a war like this, given the stakes we were just talking about. And the other consideration, where he's succeeded the most admirable in my mind, is in keeping NATO together by by constantly talking to our allies, constantly informing them of what we know in a very credible way. In other words, it's credible if you give them information, it turns out to be true. Otherwise, it's not. So we've been, the Biden administration has been pretty good at providing intelligence, not just to the Ukrainians, but to our allies that's kept them abreast of the situation and proven time and time again to be right. So they can't afford to make a big misstep, misstep in those areas. It's a very delicate balance of being very proactive, very supportive of the Ukrainians in every way possible, but without triggering uh, NATO intervention. I think that we can continue to walk that tightrope. And I would just say it'd be nice to stay on the side of being more proactive than cautious, because after all, the Ukrainians deserve our full support. So, Ralph, let's switch gears here a little bit to a couple of questions about the home front in Russia. And the first thing I want to ask you is, is I know you've spent a lot of time with SVR officers and their predecessors in the KGB over the years. You know them as people as well as anyone else I know. And and I just wonder, how do you think about how they're thinking about what is happening? What do you think their mindset is watching watching this? You know, that's a question I like to think about in my spare time because you're right. I do know some of them. I can attach faces to to this. And and also the, by that, I, I'll expand that to say also the Russian people because for me, having lived for over four years of my life in, in Soviet Union and in Russia, um, it's real. It, they're people. 
and I picture them, and I picture the SVR officers. I know that's the foreign intelligence officers for your listeners who, who don't know that there are three main services in Russia. The foreign intelligence officers um, were part of the KGB that served in embassies around the world. They were the ones who recruited and handled spies like Aldrich James and Robert Hansen. And I imagine many of them are horrified quietly horrified. I don't think any of them are probably talking about it unless they have very, very close friends and family. They're willing to share their views. Others, of course, are probably supportive, as you'd expect. But I think there's probably a significant strain of dissent and concern in that service in particular uh, because of they are, they're exposed. They, were, they understand the kind of absurd propaganda being spewed by the by the Kremlin. They know that the idea that this is some sort of military technical operation where we're just talking about possible nuclear war is, is, is so ridiculous that it's hard to believe educated people would believe it. And these people have served, for the most part, these officers have served in, in, in the West and know, know what what's being described doesn't you know, match reality. So for them, I think they have a particular problem buying into what Vladimir Putin is saying. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Rolf Moet Larsen. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Rolf, there was a very interesting article a couple of weeks ago about growing tension between the Russian military and the FSB, which is the internal um, service, the old internal service part of the uh, KGB. Um, in fact, you sent me the article, and I wonder if you could tell folks what the article said and what you think about it. Yes, I, of course, Michael, I find this particularly fascinating as a student uh, and, of course, having been involved so much long in my career with all the Russian services. And it bears mentioning that all the services, not unlike other countries, including to some extent ours, are rivalrous. But the rivalry now between, as you described, the FSB, that's the part of the old KGB, used to be called the Second Chief Directorate. They did counterintelligence. That's the part Vladimir Putin was part of when he was a lieutenant colonel and then later the director of the FSB. Uh, and then there's the GRU or the military services in the military. They don't tend to coordinate what they do very well or try to even. And right now they seem to be, I would describe it as what appears to be an all-time high in rivalry and even rifts developing, where Putin is showing, for example, some signs that he's not trusting elements of the FSB. Why? Because first they let him down by not knowing the real situation in Ukraine. It was their responsibility to know what was going on and have agents positioned all around the country who would tell him the real situation of Ukrainian support for, for a Russian invasion, and clearly that they got that spectacularly wrong. That was an intelligence failure of epic proportions. But then, after the war began, it became clear to me, and I'm this is a, a, an est, uh, I would say a professional, professional guess uh, instinct here, that there are elements that may support Ukraine in this, maybe Ukrainians or Russians with Ukrainians' background, or at least there are leaks 
from sources inside the FSB, which there's much lessly, less likely to be in the military services. So I think Putin is taking a big gamble in allowing, if it's true, if these press reports are true, the military to exercise more authority, including over elements of the FSB, because his, his source of main support of power in Russia is the internal security service, the FSB, not the military service. So there's a gamble in this, but he must be frustrated enough to take that chance. One of the things that struck me in the article was frustration in parts of the military, um, a belief that they were being held back from going all out in Ukraine. And it kind of struck me a little bit uh, uh, Vietnam-like, right? Where people felt they were being, being held back from fully taking it to the enemy. That struck me. Yes, and, and I think there are many aspects of it, one of which is I think the Russian high command is has to be stunned and dismayed with its performance, and they're trying to find alternative explanations. Oh, they're not letting us do what we need to do to win the war kind of thinking. I think we've seen that, not, nothing to that extreme in our country, but any country that's fighting a war when the, when the army is, is not succeeding, the finger pointing starts. I think another aspect of it, though, is there's a, a, a fervor uh, for taking back parts of the Soviet Union and the military that, that's unmatched in the Russian establishment. And there are what we would call far right, a very strong far right element in the Russian military that almost reaches kind of a religious fervor. Uh, in fact, does have a religious kind of connotations to it, which you don't see in most of the Russian establishment to the degree you do in the military. And those elements must be agitating particularly strongly for, you know, doing what it takes, no matter what it takes. And we've even seen some irresponsible uh, members of the Russian Duma, the parliament, and the media calling for, for I'd say, crazy things like, like – uh, unleashing nuclear weapons on London and things like this in this came, same kind of, I call, desperate zealotry. Um, so, Ralph, I'm going to talk a little bit about some polling. We've all seen the Russian government polling that shows Putin more popular than ever. But I saw a poll uh, recently that was not a Russian government poll, and I know you've seen it as well. And to be to be fair, it was taken not long after the initial invasion, so it's a little dated now. But for our listeners, here's what that poll said. And by the way, this was a nationally representative poll that was done by some academics. And what the poll found is that a little over 50% of the folks polled said that they supported Putin's special military operation. I guess that's the way the question was phrased. But they did not hold you know, that feeling particularly deeply, particularly strongly. In contrast, there was about 20% of the folks who said that they opposed the war and they did so with with deep feeling. Um, they used words like shame and guilt and anger in explaining their feelings about what was happening. And the rest of the folks, I guess, you know, 30% didn't have strong opinions, but they nevertheless use words like sadness to describe how they were thinking about that. And just love to get your take on the polls we've seen from Russia and this one in particular. Yeah, you mentioned that the poll was taken at the outset, and and, and I'll just have to I have to interject here. This is my most idealistic idealistic side of having been in intelligence for 
some, since 1983, uh, time favors truth, right? In, in, the, in the final analysis, time is against Putin here too because the more and more body bags come back, the more and more obvious it becomes from internet and social media and other sources of information that it's all lies, uh, the more people will swing over. Uh, so now the cynical side. And <laughs> when I lived in the Soviet Union, uh, I became as cynical as any Russian. If a bunch of Russians got in a line to buy something, I got in the line just because there was a line and it must mean there's something good. And I would, I would whisper all the way to the front, hey, what's up there? So, you know, we adapt pretty quickly to situations. And no Russian from the Soviet period to today, uh, even accounting for the fact many Russians weren't alive during the Soviet period, uh, will survive long by saying to any pollster that they don't support the war. So I don't really know how you make how you can conduct a meaningful poll, whether it's a Russian poll or an outsider poll. No one's going to tell you what they really believe. The 20% who did admit they feel strongly against it are courageous. They probably unburdened themselves by saying it. But the vast majority of people are just going to get in that line and watch, see how this goes. Um, and part of that is that's lost in these polls is also the realities of Russian demographics. There's a massive difference of opinion, I'm sure, between the young and the old. Mm. Uh, there's another large difference of opinion between rural and urban. One of the things I didn't realize till I've been reading articles in recent weeks about the breakdown of the, of the different units in Ukraine is they're disproportionately drawn from rural areas. Uh, and the reason for that is because these young, l lesser educated young young sons of, of villages across Russia come from highly conservative families that don't really have a voice. And and as they spread those those losses and graves around Russia, it's less likely to draw a lot of attention and and, and uh, anti-war feelings than if if the kids are from from uh, Moscow and Lenin, uh, St. Petersburg. So there's the element of Th that divide. And the one thing I can assure you is that Russians are very resourceful, like anybody around the world, in finding sources of real information and news, particularly younger people. And that's where the hope goes as this drags on, is that the anti-war sentiments will continue to increase. And, and in significant areas, I'm sure the uh, educated elite, you would call it, um, also the oligarchs, people like that, are probably, by and large, very against the war. Uh, they just can't say it, uh, or they're going to lose their money or worse. Or in the case of the uh, think tanks and government uh, advisors, a few intrepid ones have, in fact, spoken out against the war already. I kind of make a mental note of those brave people because that's how the world how the world turns, is, is finding more people who are willing to speak out against falsehood and, and aggression. What's your sense, um, Rolf, for how much accurate information about the war is getting into Russia? I would tend to believe we're underestimating it. You know, you, Putin and, and the Russian uh, censors can't cancel the Internet. Right. And it's not just about saying Facebook is not accessible anymore or some other decision that they're Twitter or something. It, it, there are ways to get the information out. There are a lot of Russians know a lot of people on the outside. A lot of Russians know a lot of Ukrainians. A lot of Ukrainians know a lot of Russians. Um, so I believe the word is spreading, and again, over time, more and more of the truth gets out. And and people, have, whether you know, it's not a matter of being educated or not educated in a city or in. A, I'm not trying to make those distinctions in in kind of the quality of thought. When people hear real information and they compare it to what they're saying, uh, being told, over time they can begin to discern which 
sounds more plausible. And I think we're seeing that process in Russia now. There are many, for example, I'm, I'm surprised myself with just how many different platforms there are for information to get into countries from the Internet these days and, and even different kinds of social media platforms that uh, the authorities probably don't even know exist. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. So, so two final questions about inside Russia, um, Rolf. First is Putin's health. Lots of discussion about this in the media I was struck a few days ago when Bill Burns was giving a public speech um, and then took some questions. He, he he answered many of those questions very openly, but when somebody asked him about Putin's health, he dodged it. And that made me wonder for the first time, really made me wonder for the first time about Putin's health. I'm just wondering what your thinking is about about Putin's health. I'm glad he dodged the question, Michael. <laughs> I, w- I, I would hope CIA knows something, right? I would, I mean, ideally, all that money that the, we, the, we, the American people, are investing in intelligence would would allow us to position sources close enough to maybe even get grab his health file or parts of his his actual file, and we would know part of the answer, if not the answer to the question. But I don't think, under any circumstances, the director of central intelligence should just tell the American people that and it would by extension it would be i think a very big mistake if we begin to make decisions based on assumptions of what this possible disease or this condition might provoke in terms of his thinking it's that whole almost hysterical question of is putin insane is he out of his mind i I try to avoid all that i do watch i'm i I have to admit i'm hooked on watching i speak in a fluid enough russian where i can watch every video watch everything i don't see anything that i would call persuasive certainly not what some people describe as slurring or any of that no i i listen to what he says most of his uh when he comes out on for example easter and other occasions and it seems to me, speaking like he always has, very clearly, very plainly, very directly. So I, I think it's a danger in over-speculating on the health uh, thing. And to the extent the U.S. government knows the answer, I, I respect the fact they're keeping it to themselves. And your thoughts, Rolf, on any near-term to medium-term threat to Putin's rule? 
I think we have to start with the assumption. Again, I, I'm not privy to anything, and if I was aware of anything going on, whether inside Russia or that the U.S. was aware of, knowing that the U.S. is not going to adopt a regime change as our policy, I can say categorically I would that, that I think is not going to happen. Um, I've been asked that question by many people, and I don't think it should. I don't. I think the Russian people yeah, need I to. Agree with you. The Russian people yep. need to make the decision as to who their leader is. It could potentially aggravate everything if the U.S. was involved in any way in trying to remove Putin from power. That being said, I would be also very surprised if there's not something going on underway, at least in in terms of desire. And the problem with it is there's only three or four or five people can make it happen. And you'd have to look back to the unsuccessful coup attempts in modern Russian history in 1991 and 1993, where hardliners tried to overthrow first Gorbachev and second Yeltsin, 91 and 93, uh, and didn't, didn't succeed even though the hardliners had support in 91 anyway, uh, the KGB chairman, Vladimir Kruchkov, and the chairman of their Joint Chief of Staff, uh, Akramayev, Marshal Akramayev, were involved directly in the coup, and they still failed to overthrow Gorbachev. So I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm not saying it's not a possibility, but I don't think we can uh, hang our hats on on, uh, on that outcome. We We just have to say the right things and do the right things that maybe people in Russia in the final analysis will decide to cut their losses and replace Putin with another leader. But that's up for them to decide. So, Rolf, a couple of uh, last questions here and in our last few minutes. And, and this might be the toughest question of all. How do you, how do you think this thing ends? Uh, it is a tough question, Michael, and I probably, when when we hopefully can look back on this and hopefully in the not-so-distant future, we can see that uh, I'm right. <laughs> because I'm going to say I think Putin has started a war he cannot win. Uh, how long it takes is in some sense up to him because the Ukrainians should not be expected and the West should not make any demands on Ukraine to settle short of regaining its complete sovereignty. Uh, and they should have their full sovereignty back, especially in light of the war crimes and Russian efforts at even committing genocide against the people of Ukraine. And the West should not pressure Ukraine, as we kind of did, in to accept the Minsk agreements, which in a way gave Russia a gateway to, that, to plan this invasion and take part of Ukrainian sovereignty away with the Minsk one and two accords. I know that sounds harsh, but I think now that we're here, we need to we need to start assessing what we did and how it contributed to this this war that Ukraine's trying to fight. Uh, the other part of it, though, is I think it's already been a strategic defeat for for Vladimir Putin. Uh, why do I say that? First, because can you imagine a scenario where he's fighting a war in his own mind to regain influence back in Ukraine? fight the influence of NATO and the European Union and, and Finland and Sweden want to join NATO? I didn't imagine. I couldn't imagine that. I couldn't mm -hmm. imagine a scenario where several European countries, including Germany, which I think Russia was counting on for, for to remain a, an energy partner no matter what, are looking long-term for independent energy sources other than relying on Russian oil and gas. Uh, it's been a disaster, will be even a bigger disaster over time for the Russian economy. Uh, the cost is probably incalculable. Uh, 
it's it's hard to imagine, particularly if any of these escalatory scenarios we've talked about, Michael, happen, particularly something like nuclear or chemical weapons being used, uh, that somehow Putin as uh, returns in favor in some sort as a normalized world leader. I so how is Russia represented after this war is over, um, unless Russia can find a way out of kind of reversing uh, what's happened up to this point. So I think it is a strategic disaster for Russia uh, in a way that uh, it's going to take Putin and, and the people who support him some time probably to recognize. And I'm just afraid before he recognizes it and takes steps to cut his losses that he's going to escalate to even higher, make it even more difficult to get out of this mess. In in answering the first part of the question on on how do you think this ends, are you saying that you believe that Ukraine um, can actually win militarily and drive the Russians out of Ukraine? I'm not sure what winning militarily looks like. So uh, I'm not sure that the Ukrainian army will reach a a, a level of fighting ability to expel the Russians completely militarily from Ukraine. That doesn't seem likely, particularly in eastern Ukraine and maybe even southern Ukraine. But that's not really the standard. The standard is, can they make the insurgency so painful, which has happened to countries like ours in the last, my lifetime, a few times, Mm -hmm. Vietnam, Mm -hmm. Afghanistan, Iraq, where they don't want to stay, and they suffer another Afghanistan-style defeat. Uh, That's possible where they have to voluntarily leave. Unfortunately, that could take years. I don't see any signs that Ukraine won't fight those years to to find that acceptable outcome for them, whereas the Russians have nothing to fight for. The Russian kids, the Russian soldiers, uh, have nothing to fight for. They're already struggling to replace hardware lost on the battlefield. Uh, because of sanctions, and they can't produce tanks and artillery pieces and, and drones and things f- as fast as we're supplying Ukraine. So the, although the military sh- balance of power is shifting in Ukraine's favor, neither is it logical or does it look possible for Ukraine to actually militarily expel the Russian army from the country. So I guess another hope for an ultimate outcome is to come to a negotiating table where there's some sort of armistice or agreement that that could be implemented in phases. Uh, and I don't know what that looks like, frankly, Michael, but, but we've got to hope there can be some kind of a negotiation on the table that would be acceptable to Ukraine and Russia. I can't see the outlines of that agreement right now. Ralph, thanks um, so much for joining us again. This has been incredibly insightful. And for our listeners, I just want to remind folks about two books that Rolf has published. The first is his memoir, A State of Mind, Faith in the CIA. And the second is a satire about the spy games between CIA and the KGB called Vampire's Rule. And Rolf, I'll tell people that between the last time you were on Intelligence Matters and this taping that I've read Vampire's Rule and it is, it is so much fun. Um, it really is. Thank you, Michael. Um, and people can get both of these books at Amazon. Um, so, Ralph, thanks again for joining us. Um, really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. That was Ralph Moat Larson. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. 
Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.